Hello, Maria. Hi, Adam. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what has led you to anti-aging research? Sure. So, my name is Maria Kovalenko, and for the past six years I've been working for a small nonprofit called Science for Life Extension Foundation, and it's um, Moscow-based, so Russia. Um, I'm Russian, and um, I've just recently moved to the States to start my PhD in Biology of Aging, and it's a June program at GSC in the Buck Institute. Um, and um, yeah, I've been fighting aging, I guess, uh, for six years now. And um, it's a really great pity that I haven't started earlier, but um, as many um, other people, um, I didn't know anything about aging research until I had this course in gerontology in my master's, and I graduated from Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, and um, um, my major is molecular biophysics, and one of the courses that I had in gerontology, and this is um, how I got first introduced to the topic, and then uh, through my professor, I'm at the head of the foundation, um, his name is Mikhail Platin, and he basically persuaded me that um, you know, life extension is the most important goal, and that aging is our like greatest enemy. And uh, regardless of what we like to do in life, um, some people like creativity, children, money, success, uh, work. Um, well, I, I don't know. You name it, and it doesn't really matter what you like to do in life. You have to be alive first to. Um, get the joy, right? To experience all the, uh, all the great things that those um, activities um, bring you. And uh, you cannot really do it when you're aging and when you have all those age-related diseases like cancer, um, uh, well, newer... Arthritis, uh, uh, diabetes. Right, right, right. There's like a huge, like a gigantic list of those diseases. And um, they cause suffering and pain, and I want to get rid of that. I don't want people to um, suffer, and I want people to live for as long as possible and be as healthy as possible. It is. Being alive is sine qua non for anything you could possibly want to do. But from a scientific perspective, too, aging is at the root, or at least one of the factors that goes into the development all of these different diseases because frequently I more often than not people don't develop cancer at 10 years old that's correct uh, except for those rare cases when cancers are um, there's a uh, clear genetic predisposition uh, the majority are acquired as we age so aging is uh, the major risk factor for all of those diseases and hence if we um, slow it down, we will postpone and prevent the majority of uh, age-related pathologies. Now, what exactly causes aging? Oh boy, <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, I think there's like um, 150 different hypotheses, so that there's a lot of thought that has been put into uh, solving this problem. Nobody really uh, can name the diff uh, like, say, 100% aging is caused by X, Y, and Z. 
Um, there, there's a wide range of different theories. They are some of them are evolutionary theories. For example, there's this antagonistic pleiotropy theory that says that um, so there's natural selection, right? We all remember Darwin and the theory of evolution, and um, it says that those who can adapt better have the advantage. And um, maybe um, those genes that give uh, humans, well, organisms, the advantage in, during their reproductive um, phase. So um, those genes that um, make the animals more like faster, uh, I don't know, smarter, whatever, you name the, the, the best. Name the, the polygenic trait. Right. Yes. Um, in their first part of life, they will be selected for. So they will stay in the population, uh, and maybe some of those genes can um, cause problems and uh, contribute to aging, um, you know, in the second part of life. But the evolution doesn't care about what happens to the organism after it uh, left progeny. So after what happens after reproductive age, nobody really cares. I mean, the evolution doesn't care. We care. Because that's our lives, right? Okay. But why doesn't the animal maintain its reproductive age indefinitely? Um, actually, a lot of animals do maintain their reproductive age pretty much until the time they die. Well, also in nature, um, animals don't really um, live until very old age. If you take the animal out of uh, the context, out of the predators, out of the whole chasing for food kind of paradigm and put an animal in a, in a lab where it um, like can, cannot be afraid of being eaten and has um, plenty of food, then the animals would live uh, until, you know, their um, kind of uh, limit for their species, and um, that's when we see those uh, age-related traits. But in, in nature, they don't really, um, the, the majority of list um, doesn't really live that long, except for the species that are, uh, there are really well, uh, super long-lived species, for example, um, naked mole rats or Brandt's bat. Uh, those animals, they're like outliers. They survive so well, and they live like 10 times longer than they're kind of supposed to, and um, supposed to meaning there's a, um, a like linear relationship um, between the weight of the animal and how long they live. So basically, the more you weigh, uh, the longer you live. Uh, whales live for a very, very long time. And um, if you plot actually all of the animals, and um, um, you would plot how long they live against how much they weigh, you would see there's a line, really. But there are some animals, some dots that would be way above the line. That would mean that those animals would be um, would live much, much longer than they're supposed to according to their weight. And naked mole rat and like friends fat and there is um, a bunch of fish um um rock fish. and parrots cockapoe parrots um, yeah right
besides sort of bird species, there's um, a number of species that are uh, really mm, um, remarkable in a sense. And um, one of the approaches to um, figuring out a way how to postpone aging or do something about it is to study those animals and understand what exactly makes them um, live 10 times longer than their very, very close uh, relatives. So they somehow, uh, I wouldn't say cheated evolution, but they found a way to um, to do much, much better. And it would be great to know uh, what are those biological reasons that make them survive for such a long time. And um, um, so there, but getting back to the theories of aging, um, well, uh, obviously there's um, um, the mitochondrial and free radical theories. Uh, yes, the free radical theory, which says that uh, the free radicals, um, the reactive oxygen species that are produced within our mitochondria, is a result of um, the uh, respiration, meaning energy production by the mitochondria. Those uh, reactive species they damage uh, biomolecules, and just uh, this contributes to the whole that that it leads to dysfunctional mitochondria, which in turn leads to dysfunctional cells, and then it leads to death of the organism. Well, this theory uh, has been one of the most prominent ones for a long time, but there is um, quite a lot of data that kind of contradicts it. Take those naked mole rats, for example. Those rodents have a gigantic amount of oxidative damage. It's like their cells are so, like, like the stuff within their cells is really, really oxidized. Nonetheless, they live for 30, 30 years. And display negligible senescence. Correct, yes. So uh, we don't really, mm, well, obviously, oxidative damage contributes to aging. We just cannot say it's um, the leading cause. It does contribute a great deal, yes. But uh, again, you cannot so say that. This would, this would leave a uh, programmed theory of aging. Uh, that one is, okay, so. There, um, I know a couple of people who are uh, in favor of this theory, but 99% of the gerontologists in the world um, don't think that aging is programmed, because um, there is there are also um, uh, facts that uh, contradict the whole program. For example, if you take um, well. Um, okay. Um, hmm. One of the examples that aging is programmed is salmon. Salmon uh, deteriorates, uh, basically falls apart after it leaves progeny. However, uh, and uh, people have been saying, oh, take a look at this uh, program that actually uh, switches on and leads to uh, death in salmon. But there is this uh, creature, and man, I don't know the name in English. It's um, a tiny um, creature that basically lives. It's like a symbiont with, with, uh, that lives uh, together with salmon. If you add that creature, the salmon can reproduce several times before they die. So uh, 
uh, if the program would be a genetic program, then having a symbiont would, would likely not to um, lead to the disturbance of this program. So, there, and there are other facts that uh, really um, uh, cause doubts that aging is a program. I don't. I personally don't think that there's um, a clear genetic program that, on purpose, that kind of evolved to uh, well, kill animals when they're old on purpose. No, it's. I, I never in interpreted it as a deterministic sort of program. Only one that made aging events more probable as time progresses. Um. Well, the. Uh, program theory of aging actually implies that there is a program that switches on and make and makes uh, animals die kind of like on purpose the the uh, well the kind of the idea that you're um, uh, de describing it's um there is another hypothesis that's called a quasi program and um, the, the difference is that there is uh, there is a genetic program of development, and it turns on when we're uh, when we're well basically consumed, right? When an organism is, is being formed with the egg and sperm, and then uh, it leads to development to a, a reproductive organism, a grown an adult, and um, that program just doesn't turn off and that leads to aging as a consequence yes. at an old age yes that's um and Mikhail Pogosloni for example who works at the Roswell Cancer Park um, uh, research center is one of the um, people who proposed this quasi program and um, the main gene that doesn't turn off in his opinion is the TOR gene it's really crucial for us when we're developing, when we're uh, still growing, right? Because TOR, it's one of the main um, kind of aging genes that are known right now. It reacts to nutrients and it makes cells um, um, divide and it's uh, responsible for biogenesis for like growing stuff inside for um, um, increasing the biomass. So. TOR is really active and really, really necessary when the organism is developing. However, it's not really beneficial to have it very active um, after reproductive age, um, during aging. And in fact, um, pretty much every intervention that blocks the activity of this gene uh, leads to life extension and health extension. For example, rapamycin, it was shown to, when uh, fed to old mice, like two-year-old mice, say, um, you know, like 65-year-old person, this kind of um, comparison with age. Um, so if you feed rapamycin to all mice, then um, they would live 49% um, longer, females a little longer than males. And so it has been uh, replicated many times. Rapamycin is one of the potential drugs that can slow down aging. Uh, it just nobody really can test it in humans because to do an experiment to figure out whether a given drug uh, extends lifespan, 
you cannot really wait for like, I don't know, 80 years for the experimental group to die. We will die in, in the course of this experiment, right? Because um, you cannot really, because humans just live for such a long time. So you have to come up with a proxy, something that you can measure, uh, you know, meanwhile, that would tell you whether aging processes are slowed down or um, enhanced. So, and that would be aging biomarkers. So if we come up with a set of uh, parameters that we can measure th uh, and we can monitor the changes in the levels of those parameters, then we will be able to see, oh, drug X really improves, I don't know, um, function Y, and this means that cells are being rejuvenated. So this is what we need. Um, and well, aging researchers have lists of those uh, biomarkers, and uh, we know what, what needs to be measured. It's just that there is unfortunately no money to do a clinical trial um, to verify those markers, so you need to verify them first. And um, yeah, it's um, unnecessary, it's like this crucial thing um, that is absolutely necessary uh, because otherwise we won't be able to test any um, anti-aging interventions. So you're looking for fairly specific things rather than, say, cholesterol or oh, cholesterol. blood pressure? Oh, those will definitely be on that list. So it's going to be everything that's measured in the clinic right now. Some of those markers are really, um, they can tell you a lot. But obviously on top of that, we would need um, things like speed of wound healing. We would need uh, to know the number of, um, I don't know, DNA damage foci in our cells. We would know um, the levels of P16, for example, to estimate how many senescent cells we have. You know, there's a whole list of really aging-specific markers that can be looked at um, in order to uh, elucidate this kind of speed of aging of a person. So most of the most of the methods for measuring these things exist and are fairly cheap and straightforward. Oh, well, <clears throat> some of them are, some of them not. Um, they do exist. That's that's for sure. Um, I uh, well, actually, curing aging is not a scientific task. It's a technological task. Scientists know what to do. Like the field knows what needs to be done in order to make humans age slower. I want to make it really clear. There are so many great ideas, there are so many good experiments that need to be carried out. The only question is funding. So there's just a um, severe lack of funding and this leads to a lot of good ideas not being implemented in real life. Um, as for the markers, some of them are really, really um, you know, easy to do and cheap. However, some not. And, um, do 
thorough analysis of what's going on in a human's body, we would need to um, perform the omics analysis. And omics stands for, uh, it's a, like a term that describes genomics, pr uh, proteomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics. Um, it's when you analyze the genome, the proteome meaning all of the uh, proteins that are expressed in the cells at a given moment. Transcriptome means all of the RNA that is produced uh, in the cell, again, at this moment. Uh, but also the metabolomics, that's all of the small molecules that we have in our blood and um, any other samples um, uh, that we can measure. So, um, such a thorough, and, and measuring all of that would lead to hundreds of thousands of different things that you need to look at, trillions actually, and that is when it gets expensive, like really expensive. And basically it's becoming less and less expensive over time. For example, take a look at the cost of DNA sequencing. To do the whole genome uh, cost a little over $3 billion in 2004. Now, it's almost $1,000 to do the whole genome sequencing. So in 10 years, the price dropped down, uh, just there's a huge, gigantic drop down, drop down in price. So uh, there's a good chance that uh, all of the rest of the analysis would become significantly cheaper. And they are getting cheaper and cheaper, and more and more people are doing this kind of um, analysis. And let me take and tell you the story of Michael Snyder. So Michael Snyder is the head of the genetics department at Stanford, and he's been um, he's done this experiment. When he um, donated his uh, blood samples, and they looked at uh, well, they sequenced his genome. They looked at his uh, proteome, transcriptome, and metabolome. So they did this omics analysis on him, and they looked at 40,000 parameters. And they've been measuring, um, uh, they've been performing measurements for, uh, I think, 14 months, a little over a year. And after following the changes in levels of those 40,000 parameters, they were able to uh, pinpoint the time uh, when um, the onset of type 2 diabetes happened in Dr. Snyder. That was pretty cool, I think. So it's like a super early detection of disease, and then he um, addressed this problem, he changed his diet, and I think um, uh, really postponed um, uh, you know, a terrible and very serious disease, or maybe avoided it at all. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but now um, I think this result is just very inspiring how medicine will be done in the future, and not a very distant future, actually. Not at all, not at all. Well, it's good to hear that the future is bright. It is. Um, I actually think that um, aging can be, like, right now, um, life expectancy can, uh, can be increased in um, everybody who's, like, alive today. Um, it's a matter of Yes, and why exactly are people hesitant to give money to anti-aging research? It's a very complicated question. 
very good one. There's um, some different reasons. Um, one of them, um, I would say that there's a huge anti-aging industry that is, um, and by huge, I mean $100 billion a year. That's how much people spend on supplements or something like this in this kind of huge money range. Um, and the sellers of the supplements uh, overpromise a lot. So there is gigantic amount of hype going on. But those remedies, and don't get me wrong, some of them may actually be beneficial for you. It's just that they definitely don't do what they are advertised they do. Um, they won't make you young, I don't know, instantly. Some of them may be good for a subset of the population. Um, everything is personalized. We don't really know uh, whether, say, um, increasing your vitamin D intake may be, may be good for person A, but it may be really detrimental for person B. We just don't know what's going on in their bodies right now. So um, this whole, um, you know, overselling of the supplements thing, that's uh, one of the reasons. Also, general neglect uh, of the aging research, like nobody knows about it. Nobody knows what kind of advances there are. Nobody, I, I, I bet nobody really knows that we can make a worm live 10 times longer. Just think about it. We can take an organism, do a, a simple procedure really, um, for changing one thing in it, or switching one thing off, and it starts to live 10 times longer. Amazing. We can make a mouse live uh, two times longer almost two times longer. Mice are not that really different from humans in terms of genetics. So um, there is some um, significant uh, body of data um, that tells us that there are things that can be done for humans. It's just that it's such an unpopular topic and it doesn't get any PR. A lot of people perceive it as unusual if they don't think of it as impossible. So you're either met with skepticism or with arguments rooted in what is natural or yes. normal. Uh, aging is um, unfortunately considered to be natural, uh, although there is nothing natural about it. And, um, you can From a psychological standpoint, it makes perfect sense, though. That's a way of coming to terms with it. People don't like to hear about aging or death. Uh, they would try to avoid this uh, conversation at all costs because it's really taking them out of their comfort zone, and I think that is actually the main reason. We're not kind of psychologically wired to be aware of the fact that everybody's going to die. It's just so profoundly frightening, and I think that our um, like our our mind has this barrier. We first encounter the thoughts of death and like um, the, the fact that our life is finite when we're um, children. Young children, maybe at the age of five, four, six, seven, everybody um, has different timing of those thoughts. But I bet pretty um, pretty many people can uh, remember 
feels really nice when they made in that and we're kind of thinking about wow my parents are not gonna die and I'm gonna die and this is just so scary but after what happens afterwards you never think of it again uh, I think this is a kind of um, a mechanism to protect us because otherwise we would just be freaking out could like constantly and uh, we would have manias and phobias and whatnot and I think because of this um, psychological mechanism that's that's when that's why um, the topic of aging or extended um, uh, lifespan doesn't really get popular or approved socially and people people just you know throw in all possible arguments like what about overpopulation and uh, the tyrants would be immortal and I have a list of this arguments and they're always the same however they're not rational actually um, the, they, they stem from um, this fear of stepping out of the comfort zone so basically you would throw in an argument to just kind of uh, justify the neglect of this conversation uh, to yourself I guess that's the mechanism this is what happens and of course overpopulation is not a problem <laughs> well I think some people are terrified of death others embrace it of course there's the concept of thanatos from Freudian psychology one that even many Freudians disown and maybe the fear is transformed in some kind of weird worship of it or some kind of desire to see things obliterated. I think there is a very powerful human impulse towards self-destruction and the destruction of other things. Pro perhaps out of just dissatisfaction with life in general. Um, yet everybody wants to have breakfast tomorrow. <laughs> Not everyone, but yes. The most vast majority of people, um, except for maybe um, clinically depressed. So I'm not talking about people who have, um, unfortunately, you know, um, maybe are sick or something. Something is really wrong with them. Um, the the majority of the population would definitely like the opportunity to wake up tomorrow because they have stuff to do. They have places to be. They have dinners with their friends and everything. And and to me, living longer means having a tomorrow every day. Because, um, let's say, tomorrow I need to be in the lab and I have to pick up a few things from UPS and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, um, a home-cooked meal and, uh, and um, you know, death is nowhere <laughs> even close or, I don't know, um, getting a disease or going to the doctor or feeling terribly ill and being in pain, people don't um, think about this. They have their own lives, their own things that they want to be doing. And to me, it's just, um, you know, living longer means having uh, the opportunity to do all of those nice things. Yeah. Yes. Um, one, one of the arguments I find particularly stupid is one that Neil deGrasse Tyson made. Well, it was uh, new skin for an old wine. He said that aging gives life meaning. Uh, yes. Death gives life meaning. And what I want to say to him is, what is the right age? Where does meaning begin? And where do we lose it? Is it 
100? Is it 200? Uh, yeah, this one is completely ridiculous. That's that's true. It's just uh, it, it was also corroborated by uh, Steve Jobs in his famous oh. speech to Stanford graduates. I just hate this speech because it praises death. He is so wrong, so oh my god wrong. And by the way, he doesn't exist anymore. So basically, he proved his point. Otherwise, <laughs> but, but okay. So 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 here's um, death doesn't give life meaning. No, death erases you. Death is the absolute evil. It's the absolute worst thing that can happen. Um, it's um, um, brings all of your achievements to zero. You do not live in your work that will, I don't know, if you wrote a book or something good that you did in your life. No, you die. You, um, you know, get consumed by words and stuff, and like your body disintegrates. Your consciousness does not exist after you, your death. Um, that's it, period. Um, death um, eliminates you. It does not give you meaning. Life gives life. I, I think their argument is it gives you a sense of urgency because there is an end point. Uh, a deadline. The ultimate deadline. Well, uh, right now, yes, unfortunately, everybody has an, a kind of an expiration date. But I don't think that that actually makes people do what they do. No, they do what they do because they like what they do, because they... Um, find the power in themselves to do what they do. And um, if you ask an artist why he or she uh, creates his art or her art, they would say because um, they would like to express their feelings. Or, um, you know, I, I seriously doubt it's um, because they will die in well, in a number of Shakespeare's sonnets, he refers to his poetry living on long after himself. So art is a form of immortality for them, and that's one of the reasons why they create. But def but I, I personally don't see this as uh, a way to achieve immortality. No. Sure. Um, you after, after you die, you dance. Uh, it doesn't really matter what happens with your work. It's a good thing that people, uh, you know, future generations appreciate what you've done, but it has nothing to do. Oh, and think of, uh, of how many more great things you would have accomplished if you if you died. Um, so, no, it's other things in life that give life meaning. I think life itself is the. Is well, before we veer too far off into philosophy, although I fear we already have, I've always thought that many people would eventually want to terminate their lives on their own terms after a certain, after hundreds or thousands of years. I think it's, it should be about the choice, yeah. Everybody who doesn't want to live longer, no problem. We, we don't have a, don't go to the doctor, I mean, don't take medicine. Um, don't take drugs, don't apply therapies to yourself yet. Uh, if you have appendicitis, you do not think you dial 911, you get um, an ambulance and you go to the hospital. You don't think about this thing. So it's um, a, a, a normal, it's in human nature to uh, deal with your health issues 
with all um, uh, with everything that is uh, with all means possible. So um, I um, obviously think that, um, that there are cases when people just don't want to live anymore. Sure, it's about everybody having the choice whether to extend their life or finish it right away. I mean, the, the drive to self-preservation is strong, but that's more of an instinctive knee-jerk reaction. There are plenty of people who damage themselves in any number of ways by drinking excessively, taking drugs, and they know that these are damaging things. I, I think there would be a fairly small number of people who would want to be immortal and well, not everybody will want it, sure. And um, I mean, again, it's up, to, it's up to the people. Well, uh, but it's about having the choice. Right now, everybody who wants to live longer actually depends on everybody who doesn't want to live longer. And they're trapped. Now, that brings up the issue that many people raise, which is the cost of these treatments. Um, sure, medical costs are high. Um, going to the doctor um, is really expensive. Um, here in the States, but actually in every country, it's just that some healthcare systems are better than others. Um, well, okay, some medical procedures are really expensive um, right now, and yes, um, it is a problem, but it's um, not such a huge problem because uh, technologies tend to become cheaper. Uh, remember cell phones? How expensive they were in like 1996? Oh my god, they were. It's like everybody who had a cell phone, they were like kings, right? Right now, we have more cell phones than toilets on earth. <laughs> so the technology really became much cheaper, and um, it's a universal trend happens basically to any uh, kind of technology. But, but what they're wondering about is the timeline. When will these technologies be cheap enough for a middle-class family to afford? People don't really uh, think about that, but sure, uh, <laughs> that's this argument. Um, uh, well, um, it's going to take some time. We don't know how, how long it's going to take. I mean, it just depends on the market, it depends on the type of technology. Again, uh, this example with genome sequencing, it went from 3 billion to almost 1,000, well, let's say 5,000, right? Maybe 2,000 right now, in 10 years. So maybe it won't be such a terrible, um, terribly long period of time. We don't know. It depends, again, on the particular technology that we have in mind. And hopefully there will be exponential progress in the field, in the availability of these drugs, and perhaps even the ability of the consumer to produce them in their own homes. Some of the drugs are really, um, well, aspirin may be uh, a drug that slows down, uh, down aging. Aspirin has very good chances to be that. Uh, it, we call it geoprotective drugs. Um, so not necessarily they should be like super expensive or um, some things uh, already exist. You just have to prove that they're actually slowing down aging. But of course.
if we're talking about, say, uh, regenerative medicine approaches where we would need to sub, uh, substitute a, a failed organ. Say, for example, you have a, a liver failure, right? Um, and um, say the technology to create your own brand new liver using your stem cells exists. That will be pretty expensive. Yet, it would not be astronomically expensive. Um, uh, the uh, regenerative medicine field is um, advancing quite rapidly, and um, I really like to uh, watch the uh, um, evolution of breakthroughs of the things that people are able to do right now. And I think we're not that far away from being able to uh, create solid organs like um, the heart and the liver, the, the lungs, kidneys. Um, yeah, so that's definitely. Um, A matter of um, another, another maybe decade, or uh, we, d we don't really, I cannot really make predictions right now when it's going to be available to the general public, but I'm pretty sure that um, the progress, since it's, uh, as you said, it's, uh, kind of evolves exponentially, I'm, I'm really hoping we're getting closer to this, you know. The part of the curve when it's hard. They can't see you. This is audio. But yes, the straight part. Mm -hmm. Straight part. Well, gene therapy is another interesting thing. Yes. That application. I think gene therapy is um, probably one of the well most promising things that we that can be done right now. So um, there's this, this experiment that we kind of proposed, the longevity gene therapy. Um, okay, first of all, I have to say that there are more than uh, 100 or maybe about 100 of genes that are associated with longevity. We know if we uh, boost a certain gene, boost its activity, then more animals start to live longer. So why don't we um, uh, take 20, for example, 20 best genes that uh, do um, significant good to model animals to make them longer and help uh, have less um, you know, health issues as they um, age. So we take those 20 genes, with, uh, we do a gene therapy um, in mice, in all mice. Let's take two-year-old mice, that would be again, you know, an equivalent of a retired person, um, because mice live like two and a half years or something like that. Um, so we deliver those 20 genes into mice, and then we choose, say, five best genes, and we test those mice rigorously. We measure all, you know, all those biomarkers, those omics, and we decide what kind of gene therapy is uh, uh, works best, and then we take five. Uh, of our top choices and then do combinations and there's a good chance that one of those combinations will yield not only an additive but a synergistic effect because and uh, let me give you two examples why we think this is a good idea well first of all gene therapy was already um, successful in mice it was uh, done a couple of years ago by Maria Blasco and she works in Spain in Madrid 
and they delivered the telomerase gene uh, using adeno-associated virus in mice, and the mice didn't have more than one cancer. They lived, um, well, two-year-old mice lived 13% longer, and one-year-old mice, like adult uh, mice, they lived 24% longer. So this is a nice life extension, and they had better neuromuscular coordination, they didn't lose as much cutaneous fat as their non-treated counterparts. Um, they were feeling pretty good, and, and um, so that can be called a success. Another experiment that uh, makes us think that this whole combination of gene therapies um, is a good uh, thing to do is an experiment done by Pankaj Kapahi from the Buck Institute. Um, Pankaj uh, created um, uh, a worm, uh, and he turned off two genes in this worm simultaneously. And those genes are the TOR uh, gene and uh, the IGF, that's um, insulin growth factor 1. Uh, and if you turn those genes off separately, uh, TOR will give you 30% life extension, and turning off IGF-1 will give you 100% uh, life extension. But instead of getting 130% um, when um, both of the genes were turned off, he got um, like 400% life extension. So it was a synergistic effect. So this is pretty cool. And this is an indication that sometimes if you interfere with um, kind of complementary mechanisms of aging, if you um, switch off to different things at the same time, it can yield to a better, much better result um, compared to uh, turning them off separately. So that's why we think that gene therapy, a combination of gene therapies, can be really, really good. And since we want to do it in all mice, it means faster results. Um, and the uh, opportunity to move into the clinic uh, right away. And what role does epigenetics and gene expression play in aging? And will there be methods of managing these things in the future? I think it plays a huge role. And there's so many facts that uh, link genetic changes to aging. Well, for example, loss of heterochromatin, um, well, um, over aging, uh, over time, uh, age-related DNA demethylation. Um, this is just to name a few things that are going on. Um, as for the interventions, that's a little. Uh, it may be a, a trickier thing to do. However, um, there was this experiment when um, when people overexpressed the um, heterochromatin uh, protein 1, the HP1 protein, to, to be short, and done in Drosophilus, and they got, um, I think it was like a 30% life extension effect. So there are things that there are, um, you know, single interventions that can be isolated that lead to epigenetic changes, but changing the epigenetic landscape on, on average, uh, that's um, kind of 
complicated thing to do right now. Right. I mean, drugs do exist to demethylate and methylate genes, but it's a shotgun approach. We need to be um, very specific. We don't want, uh, basically we want genetic changes in very, very particular parts of our genome because something we want to be silenced, like at all times, but some things we want to be uh, more more active. So um, the epigenetic basically um, is responsible for what genes are active right now in the cell and what are, are not, what are silent. And um, there has to be a balance between those things. And um, basically we would need to come up with a way to mark the places where we want those epigenetic changes to happen. And um, yeah, and that's um, a challenge. It, it'll down the road, maybe a job oh. for nanotechnology. Yeah, it definitely will be solved as a word of time. And I have no doubts uh, that, yeah. Well, if such a thing existed, if you could monitor all of these signs closely and you could intervene before they ever even became half of a problem, I don't see why we couldn't be immortal. Uh, yes, uh, there uh, actually are there are no indications that we can't. Yeah, I totally agree. And there are people, unfortunately, who seem to think that aging is the result of the second law of thermodynamics, which is hilariously stupid. But uh, um, you have to take a look, always take a look at the um, like requirements for the system. We're not a closed system. So right. So, so, so you have to apply these laws with care. You have to be absolutely, be absolutely sure that um, your the situation that you are describing matches the situation that the law can be applied to. People are not well. Lay people are not very well known for properly applying scientific concepts. That's why the word quantum can be plastered on anything and on everything, and I fear the same fate is going to fall epigenetic, although that's not as catchy a word. Um, yeah, it's a growing trend, I would say. Um, well, it's good, though, because it, gen it would generate more interest in, you know... Maybe the wrong kind of interest. Um... I don't think there is a wrong kind of interest. There is a wrong kind of oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I guess that at the root level, people just have to continue to write things from an age-related perspective and give people the very correct impression that aging is at the root of disease and should be considered a disease well, itself. Yes, and this is, this is a, an excellent point. I think that uh, official recognition of aging as a disease or a syndrome, um, it will do wonders. It's going to be like a miraculous thing. Um, well, <clears throat> well, first of all, because uh, pharmaceutical companies would have an indication aging being something that needs treatment, and it would allow for um, drugs to be developed for clinical trials.
trials to uh, be carried out because right now anything that you want to you know bring to the market you have to um, run a clinical trial to um, illustrate that it's effective against a pathology a given disease that is on the IED, uh, ICD away oh, I IDC oh, okay the list of diseases that is currently the current one established by the World Health Organization basically they're the, in charge of creating this list that everybody every medical professional in the world um, uh, considers and uh, it's just a huge list of diseases that humans can have uh, aging is not is not there and I've checked <laughs> and uh, it's not considered to be anything right now. It's just as if it doesn't exist. Yet, uh, if we register, if we uh, recognize aging as a syndrome or uh, a condition that needs to be uh, treated, then it would be um, like a, a door opener. For aging research, I think this would be uh, one of the reasons why funding can be uh, significantly um, increased uh, for the field in general, and um, it's just going to be great. It is a tricky task to do. It's not impossible because we know Unity can address the World Health Organization and prove their point whether a given um, thing is or uh, is not a disease. Couple of examples. Homosexualism used to be officially recognized as a disease, and people were electrocuted as a treatment. It, um, but then again, the American um, uh, and the Association of American Psychiatrists, or I, I'm, I don't really remember the exact name of the organization. They addressed the organization and said these are the reasons why homosexualism cannot be uh, considered pathology, and then it was removed from the list. Osteoporosis, on the other hand, was never considered a disease before, but then I, I guess it was in the 70s or 80s when it was added to the list because the professional community again addressed uh, this issue and they kind of proved, they provided the arguments why it should be considered as a disease. So our hope is that uh, aging uh, the same thing could be could happen to aging as and as a matter of fact um, we try to do this uh, to, to do the first step towards it um, so uh, the science life extension foundation organized uh, genetics of aging and longevity conferences and uh, the last one was uh, in Sochi in April 2014 so several months ago and um, uh, at this meeting uh, we collected signatures under the uh, letter to Director General to Margaret Chan of the World Health Organization and um, basically uh, the professional community asked to include age-related diseases as a separate category so that the World Health Organization could measure uh, health parameters related to those diseases in order to kind of gain the statistics and have the uh, Ground to uh, further uh, in the future uh, argue that aging is in fact um, 
the leading cause of all of those uh, health issues, and it should be considered a um, you know a condition that needs treatment. And um, it was, to be honest, quite hard to send them the letter actually, <laughs> because um, uh, World Health Organization does not is not really open to the public. But uh, I managed to get an answer, to send a letter and get an answer uh, from them. And uh, they said that they are actually including aging um, as a um, topic in their general assembly in 2015. And they were kind of thinking of doing the same thing that we were proposing. So this is a good indication um, of that the ground can be changed. It just needs significant organizational effort, which unfortunately my organization cannot do because we're like four people. And uh, yeah, <laughs> we need help. But this is the way to go. I mean, it's it can be it can be changed. There is nothing impossible about that. It's just a matter of um, you know quite a lot of work, but it's totally doable. Of work and of presenting it in a way that is palpable and palatable to the average person because some of the efforts particularly those that use the word immortality seem creepy or weird or uh, the stuff of science fiction we're not using the word immortality in addressing you okay. but <laughs> i know no, no i'm not i'm not referring to you guys i'm just talking about transhumanists in general Unfortunately, well, um, okay, this one again is complicated. Um, okay, let me tell you this. The most dedicated people to doing something about aging are actually the ones who would want to live forever. I think this is a, an insanely powerful motivation. Because think about it, really, if you have all the time in the world, then you can improve yourself, you can become a much better person, you can speak all the languages, learn everything that you want, learn how to play all different instruments, you can travel to Mars, you can explore the universe, you can have all the money, the power, and women and men, I don't know, whatever you like, in the world, it's just, you can become a king of the world, I mean, what's bad about that? It's the most um, motivating thing ever. Well, it sounds a little too good to be true. Well, yeah, because nobody really is immortal right now. Uh, <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of um, connotations that uh, come together with the word immortality. The religious ones, the uh, creepy sect ones, different things that people, you know, um, that come to mind when you hear the word immortality. But, um, um, and this is a problem for the field, yes, for sure. Um, transhumanists are not well understood, unfortunately, but transhumanism is the, like, the greater good. It seems like an inevitability, that's for sure. In the long run, yes. However, the question is whether we, you know, we are, like, we are going to make it or not. 
I hear you're writing a cookbook. Yes. Um, it's called Longevity Cookbook, and um, it's a book that would provide information, scientific facts, about different types of food. Um, and um, it will be based solely on the latest research articles. It's going to be... Um, it's not going to be vegan, it's not going to be vegetarian, it's going to be science-based facts, like the current state of knowledge uh, about the impact of different types of food on our health. Say, for example, if there was a study on 100,000 people that showed that tomatoes actually reduce uh, prostate cancer risk by 90%. This is pretty awesome, and I would like to share this kind of information uh, with the world, and there is actually so much. And um, I'm going to start a crowdfunding campaign to uh, create this book, because, uh, and I would need the money, well, for starters, because I would like to hire a bioinformatics team, people who would do the literature test, uh, text mining, people who could um, um, kind of put together uh, the uh, inf existing information because there are a lot of papers, like a lot. There's like four million, more than four million papers about salt alone, and apples uh, have more than two million pa scientific papers. Obviously, not of those scientific papers are about um, the health implications, but a decent percentage. So that's why I would need um, uh, professional help um, to um, get uh, the data, and I would uh, include both the positive and the, you know, the controversial, um, maybe negative facts, because some things are good for a certain subpopulation, which can be not really good for another group of them. Um, I would also uh, include information on how to cook longevity and cook um, in terms of science. So I would talk about the mechanisms of aging, and I would talk about how different foods can influence those mechanisms, mechanisms of aging, and it would, the book will have pretty charts, <laughs> uh, will have pictures to illustrate. And I would uh, also talk about the experiments really cool things that can be and should be done to slow down aging and get, you know, get rid of the nasty diseases of aging. So, um, oh, and uh, of course I would um, provide the recipes. Uh, I intend on uh, collaborating with chefs and professionals. And um, so this is going to be a cookbook that is based purely on the current state of knowledge, um, scientific knowledge. So that would make you the anti-food babe. Because you're using real data to make your decisions rather than whatever she does. Whatever who does. Uh, oh, you're not familiar with the food babe. No. Oh, she has gotten a rise out of the skeptic community because she is strongly anti-GMO, anti-this, anti-that. 
Okay, so <laughs> my book my book is not going to be anti-GMO, uh, and uh, it's going to be uh, whatever the literature says. It's not going to yeah. push its own agenda. It's going to push facts, like the truth. And she recently claimed that airplanes were cheating people because they were not delivering a hundred percent oxygen air? in the recycled air. Yes, uh, I guess she's not familiar with the concepts of combustion or even the real distribution of gases in the atmosphere. <gasps> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and there, there's so many um, people who talk about food who have no idea how um, like digestion works, what kind of things are, you know, um, what kind of things can actually, anyways, um, there's so many people who make, um, you know, all kinds of claims about different diets, but uh, I don't think that the majority are actually fact-based. So, yeah. generally they refer to something like nature or what prehistoric people purportedly ate. Well, we're somewhat different from those people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. And those people generally live to the ripe old age of 35. Oh, even less than that, I guess. Well, if, you, if you're counting in infant mortalities. Okay. That tends to mess up the statistics a bit. Sure. It would be a great boon to many people because, of course, to keep up with the current state of nutritional science is a full-time job. Oh, yeah. That's, that's why I need a team. That's why I'm doing the crowdfunding and launching the campaign. And so people yeah. read things in Reader's Digest or Parade Magazine or whatever, little 200-word bits that don't tell you anything about the study with these very sensationalistic titles that eating a strawberry is going to prevent breast cancer, whatever. So hopefully this will give people a nice, solid, modern introduction to what these foods actually do yes, and, and their real benefits. Yes, and my idea is to educate people so that they could make an informed choice of what kind of food to include in their diet or what kind of food not to. That's the, my goal is to provide information. Uh, most accurate. Right. Sounds, <laughs> it sounds wonderful. And I will... All right, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. And I hope that when you begin your crowdfunding campaign, I can have you back. Yes, that would be fantastic. Thanks. Yep. All right, take care. Yeah, you too. Look forward to talking to you soon. Bye. Bye. -bye.